So this fall we've been tracing God's commitment to restoring the broken relationship created by our rebellion against him in the Garden of Eden. And we've been doing this by looking at the covenants that God made with humanity since our fall. And we've seen that the covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses progressively reveal the key player in our salvation, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, and that's what the covenants are largely, God's promises, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ was always the one who by his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his glorification, and his ascension would once and for all time make a way for us to reverse the effects of our sin and restore our relationship with the Holy God. You know, it's, it's wrong for us to consider the covenants as missed opportunities or as failures, as if God made a covenant, we blew it, so he makes another covenant, we blow it, he makes another covenant, we blow it. That is not how we should look at the covenants. Matter of fact, we need to look at the covenants, these promises of God to these holy folks, these folks through the generations, as building blocks, one upon the other, which ultimately lead to the full revelation or the full uh, to fulfill the law in Jesus Christ. Who the Bible says at just the right time. That, that means to me that all the time before wasn't a waste, <laughs> but was building up to the right time. At just the right time, Jesus Christ came to overcome sin, death, and Satan. So let me just quickly review what we've learned from these covenants concerning Jesus Christ. God's covenant with Adam in the garden told us that salvation would come through the offspring of a woman. The covenant that God made with Noah was that salvation would come through faith alone. God's covenant with Abraham, salvation would come from a descendant of Abraham. God's covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. Well, the last time we were talking about this, the last time we had a sermon on this, we learned that salvation would come through someone other than ourselves, and it would be a prophet like Moses. A prophet like Moses is someone who came to save from slavery. And that's where our salvation would come from. Someone who would free us from slavery. Today I'm going to talk to you about something that seems rather obscure, but will become very clear very quickly. And that is that salvation 
will come by substitution. This is the second part of the Mosaic Covenant that I want to emphasize. See, we've seen that the covenant that God made to Israel through Moses was a comprehensive and complex system or framework of how Israel could stay in good stead with God. How they could be known as a holy nation, a people set apart from all the other nations. It was a complete explanation of how Israel should live its life. It included regulations about hygiene and business practices and family relationships and nutrition and housing, social relationships, about justice. There were complete laws, sets of laws about civil laws and uh, criminal laws. And as we saw last time, it presented an ideal that was unattainable. There's no way anyone in Israel could fulfill the law. It was impossible. And that is because of a fundamental, a fundamental understanding about human nature. And that is that we are by nature sinful. And because of that, we can't fulfill righteousness ourselves. It's impossible. And so, <laughs> we learn from the Mosaic Law that God is holy. His standards are impeccable and beyond us. And that we are sinful and need But the law was not just about convincing humanity that it would in no way ever be able to fulfill the law or become right with God through anything that they could do in and of themselves. The law also provided graciously a means for addressing sin in the lives of the Israelites. If they sinned, God gave them in the law something to do about it that would reconcile them to God, that he would forgive them. It was gracious of him to do that. We know that as the sacrificial system. And so today I want us to take a look at three key components of that system that God put in place religious practices that he gave to them so that they could effectively address their sin. The first is the Ark of the Covenant. This elaborate chest, which is all it was, was where the law was kept inside of it, the tablets that were given to Moses. And it was the symbolic site of God's presence. Now, we know that God can't be confined to a box. We know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. But in grace, God made sure that Israel knew that his presence could be found 
unquestionably, always, at all times, in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. So it symbolized the presence of God with the Israelites. And so where the Israelites went, the Ark went. Because they were to always have God in their presence as a holy nation. So there's the Ark of the Covenant. Got a little schematic diagram for the next component of religious worship, and that is the tabernacle. You see, you can see in that rectangle to the left, that is where the Ark of the Covenant is. But if you zoom out, there's that larger rectangle, which is the tent of meeting, which is actually a tent that is split into two parts, the most holy place, and then the shaded area, the holy place. And then around that is a complex. And beyond that is Israel trying to fulfill the law, but messing up all the time. Israel realizing that we can't fulfill this law that God gave us, but realizing also that God gave, it, gave us a means by which we could address our sin. That included the Ark of the Covenant, included the tabernacle, and thirdly, involved a vocational group known as the priesthood. So the law set out a religious sect as the clergy. The priests, whose full-time job was to minister and to do the things that were required for Israel to stay in right relations with God. And there was also another class of people that God, the law, set aside. And they, they were called the Levites. And they were kind of like administrative assistants to the priests. So there you have it. The Israelites were given the means by which they could deal with their sin. It included the Ark of the Covenant where God was present. It included the tabernacle in which the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place. And it included the priesthood who acted on behalf of the Israelites in dealing with their sin before God. I'm going to read chapter 16 of Leviticus, which talks about the Day of Atonement. I want to remind you what atonement means. It's to repair a wrong. And so part of the law was a day, a specific day on the calendar called the Day of Atonement. It was the most holy day, Yom Kippur the most holy day on the calendar. And it was the day that Israel sought God's atonement, forgiveness. Let me read for you. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, who was the chief priest, that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain 
in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. Now listen to this. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around his waist and put on the linen turban. These are the sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, offering to make atonement for himself or to rectify or remedy the wrong for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censure full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant of the law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his fingers sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his fingers seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that it is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of it of the blood on it with his fingers seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from uncleanliness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess it all. And, and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself, listen to this, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place 
and he's to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. This is, and I'm just skipping one paragraph, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It's a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It's a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Sounds like a bloody mess to me. Right? Animals being sacrificed. Blood being sprinkled. Without getting really technical, I want to point out three really important components or understandings that people had of that Day of Atonement. And in fact, throughout the year, one could deal with their sin by bringing sin offerings. But the Day of Atonement was for the people of Israel itself. First of all, sacrifice. There had to be a sacrificial death involved in the forgiveness of sin. Blood is the sign of death. And as a matter of fact, it's the death which brings atonement. For the mere bleeding of a victim is not sufficient. The victim must die as a sacrifice. Substitution is the next thing. The victim's death is a substitution for the death of the offerer. In other words, the animal that died and was sacrificed was a substitution for the Israelite who had sinned. And then finally, sufficiency. The sacrifice must be considered sufficient by the one being offered to. And it says they're usually a deity, which would be God. Various rules apply regarding what types of sacrifice are sufficient and which are not. <clears throat> and so you had to know, and it was understood, that for different sins, there were different sacrifices that were considered sufficient by God. God's prescribed antidote for sin then, through the law, impressed on the Israelites a number of things. The first thing is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Secondly, the sinfulness of man. And then finally, the cost of sin, which is death. They realize that the remedy of their sin required a substitutionary death. So here we are in 2018. 
We don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> Thankfully. As a matter of fact, if you're a practicing Jew, you don't do it either. <laughs> they don't do that stuff right now either. And some would say that's because there isn't a temple. And there's other reasons made for that by the Jewish people. But as Christians, we certainly don't do all of this stuff. And that's because we understand the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the advantage of 2020 hindsight. And we can clearly see how the Mosaic covenant and the law that prescribes substitutionary death points to the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said these words in Matthew 5, 17, they're recorded. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, as if to say, well, that was a waste of time, and that didn't work. Once again, didn't work. Let's figure something else out. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How did Jesus meet or fulfill the requirements for atonement? Well, let's take a look at three passages of Scripture, three verses. Sacrifice. In Romans 3, Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to, receive, to be received by faith. God chose to be the substitute sacrifice, to have his blood shed on our behalf. So the same concept, but a much more meaningful and powerful way that Christ brought about atonement. Secondly, as the Israelites understood, atonement required substitution. And we read in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, he became our substitute. He took upon himself, even though he was perfect, sin. So that he would be the substitute for us. Even though we deserve death, Christ took our place. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why humanity no longer has to do the, the substitutionary sacrifices. Blood doesn't have to be shed. This is why when Christ died on the cross, God wrenched the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place because it was no longer required. Atonement was brought through Jesus Christ himself not behind a curtain, by a priest, on an annual basis. Jesus Christ, because he was both God and man, and lived a perfect life, was a substitutionary sacrifice. And no other one is required. And that brings us to the third element that the, the Israelites understood about gaining atonement with God, and that was sufficiency. Was Christ sufficient? Well, we've read in Hebrews, none. 
But when Christ came, he did not enter by means of the goats, uh, of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And so before a holy God, the only blood that needed to be shed was one person's, and that was Jesus Christ's blood. And at that shedding, all that was required to free humanity from the bondage, the slavery, the shackles to sin, death, and Satan, all of it was addressed by the blood of Christ. And then we read again in Hebrews 9, just the next verse. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death? And this is the critical difference between continuing to do the sacrifices of animals and the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifices of animals forgave us our sin until we sinned again. The sacrifice of Christ made us perfect once and for all. Our status was changed. Our status is changed by the blood of Christ. That's what he means by cleansing our consciousness. You can think of it this way. The sacrifices of animals was an outward cleaning. But the sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of his blood and our acceptance of it by faith, cleans the inside cleanses us from the inside and is all that is needed. It is sufficient, in other words, for atonement. And so the elements of sacrifice, substitution, and sufficiency were all met perfectly in Jesus Christ, which makes his sacrifice so much more perfect than the sacrificial system given through Moses, by God, to the Israelites. And so, what are we learning about Christ from the Mosaic Covenant? We are finding out that our salvation will be by substitution. And so once again, that portrait of Christ on the cross has more strokes that are developing the picture of Jesus Christ as we look at these covenants that God has given over time. To me, this means something really reassuring. And I hope it does for you too. I want you to know that your salvation was not obtained sort of as a last ditch plan or, or a plan B by God who was pulling out his hair, trying to figure out some way that would take with humanity. No. 
You were on his mind before the creation of the world. And what we're studying as we study the history of God's covenants over time is your history. It's your history. It's how God progressively brought about Jesus Christ so that someday, one day, you could simply say, Jesus, I accept you into my heart as my Lord and Savior. That's all you have to do. But do you understand, do you appreciate all that is all that means? That's what these covenants teach us. That Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law and that all of God's promises were yes in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this great plan. I thank you for helping us to understand it, to kind of unpack it from over the millennia, over the years, how you thoughtfully, with us in mind, brought about on that perfect day, that day that we'll celebrate in a month or so, on that perfect day, at just the right time, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. It speaks of your great love for us, and we are so grateful. Amen.